0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Digital Noir Presents, live from Fest. I'm your host, Sam Davies, and I was really excited for this conversation that we had at Fest 2019. I've been a longtime fan of the Australian company Bellroy, the carry goods company. If you don't know about them, they make beautiful leather wallets, amongst other carry goods. Their products are designed so intelligently, and everything about the communications and the packaging of the products was so alluring for me as a consumer I think I actually found out about them through a Facebook ad so they really got me in the funnel and since then um, I've become a real advocate for the brand and I, I know a lot of other people that have also you know really enjoyed the products and become a part of the Bellroy tribe so it was a pleasure to sit down with Charlie Simpson who is the head of flourishing at Bellroy What's flourishing, you might ask? So Belroy's um, internal mantra is to promote better ways to carry, use business as a force for good, and help the world and their crew flourish. So internally, they put a massive emphasis on their people um, and about building trust internally and externally. So we sat down and, and talked about building a culture and being involved in a, a fast-moving scale-up business and how you maintain culture. Borough is a B Corporation. If you haven't heard of B Corporations, it's worth checking out. Um, but it's a certification for businesses that are using the power of business for good, essentially. We talked a bit about that. And we also talked about Charlie's new venture. So she's actually gone out and started her own consultancy, which is called Plucky Frank, which is allowing her to go out and work with more Australian businesses and helping them to grow a great culture um, and do business for good. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. So without further ado, let's jump in with Charlie Simpson. Hey and welcome to Digital Noir Presents live from Pause Fest 2019. I'm here with Charlie Simpson, head of Flourishing at Belroy. How are you?
1: Good, thanks Sam. How are you?
0: Yeah, really good, thanks. Um, quite excited to talk to you because I've been a fan of um, Bellroy for quite some time. Is it your first time here at Pawsfest or?
1: It is my first time at Fest. yeah. A okay. few other Bellrovians came last year but um, I missed it. So.
0: Yeah, nice. It's. Um, I think it's our fourth or fifth year. We, we've always loved it because it's, it's quite a broad, I suppose, reaching event and there's lots of people talking about really interesting stuff that all kind of hits on things that I'm interested in personally but it's it, it doesn't have any of that sales feel to it. And it is, it is, I think, quite expansive, I suppose, in some of the thoughts that are uh, talked about.
1: Yeah, it also feels quite connected to the community, which is interesting. Um, most conferences have that, like, closed box sort of feel where you're stuck in a room. And this, this is sort of, you can see there's, like, non-PauseFest folks just walking around everywhere as well, which is cool.
0: And what flows off that, I think, as well, is often you feel like the, the, the speakers or the moderators also get sort of put off in their own little box, whereas here it's mm-hmm. like everybody hangs around for a couple of days and um, especially last year we talked to a lot of international guests that they just loved it. They're like, this is so cool actually getting to hear some you know really interesting talks happen as well. So
1: Yeah, there's some really eclectic stuff happening. Yeah, it is yeah. very eclectic. It's quite fun. I was reading through the list of all of the other panels and other presentations that are on and some of them I was just like I am not even sure what that is so that sounds interesting
0: (laughs) it's crazy this year too there's a a lot going on we've got three of us here and even trying to spread that out between that's going to be difficult so
1: yeah it'd be hard to get across everything
0: definitely so one of the things that really interests me I think about and like I said I've sort of known about Bellroy for I don't know probably since quite the early days but great products often tend to have really great teams behind them so we're actually just talking about Bellroy as an example of having your customer service or almost been as important to the product as, you know, the wallets or whatever it is themselves. Um, how do you think, w- what makes a business like Bellroy different? Like what what are the ingredients that go into
1: Into making it that. what yeah. it is. Mm. Um, I mean, I think there are lots of little things, but probably the largest big thing is that um, Bellroy was built by founders who had um, an ethics and purpose-driven approach to business from the start. So it wasn't, um, you know, it's not bolted on. It's not something that is like, a, oh, yeah, we make products and, you know, sometimes we do some nice things for the world. Um, it's more sort of baked into the, the DNA of everything that we do. And because um, the founders have sort of all been quite heavily involved in the effective altruism movement, there's this combination of ethics and rationality Um that sort of means that there is both strong purpose-driven intent behind what we're doing but also um, really strong thinking principles so that it is kind of an odd blend of um, both highly analytical and rational and um, very well thought out and also um, very ethics-driven and wanting to kind of do good in the world.
0: What Laura and I were just talking about in terms of um, for-purpose businesses, you know, for-purpose doesn't mean not for profit. For for-purpose means, um, you know, doing doing great things and 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 yeah, trying to make a profit, trying to make incredible yeah. products or services, whatever that might be, but doing it in a way that um, what well, one empowers the people directly under you, but also your uh, your customers and and the, the world in general.
1: Yeah, and I mean, one of the key things that I think is important in a, a for-profit. Um, purpose-driven business is that they're usually wanting, most of the businesses are usually wanting to be able to scale in a way that being a not-for-profit actually makes incredibly difficult. And so if you want to be able to have a large impact on the world, um, commerce is actually a really effective method of being able to sort of grow that and get it out in the world and be able to have the sort of financial freedom internally to iterate and to kind of try things that are new and, and to not be having to account for every single penny um, to the tax department all the time. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: I think with, um, again, with the the product that, that Bellroy makes, well, the, you know, lots now, but initially it was sort of, you know, a smaller product range. The thing that you could feel as a consumer coming into it, I think I always joked, I think I saw a Facebook ad initially, that's how I came across the product, which yeah. is you know, generally not, you know, I, I don't like to click on Facebook, but something drew me to it. And yeah. I think... The attention to detail and the care that you could see had gone into all of the copy Mm -hmm. um the design elements and then you know the whole flow through of actually the purchase it it all just had a um yeah you could feel that there was people behind it that really they they were excited they cared about the product themselves um and it's interesting i mean i think just the fact of your your title you know hiring ahead of flourishing they're Mm -hmm. obviously thinking about how do we pull that back into the team as we grow
1: yeah i mean one of bellroy's um sort of three strands of our mission statement um, is to inspire the world to carry better, um, use business as a force for good and help the world and our crew flourish. Um, And that was already there when when I sort of came on board as the head of flourishing. So I think, you know, wanting to kind of do good um, broadly in the world also means that we want to do good internally with our staff. Um, And, you know, just because you, you have a very large number of touch points all the time with people that you work with every day, Um, you can do things that are just much harder to do at scale with the population. But it's an interesting kind of way of figuring out like what does it look like when you try and help a much smaller group of people to flourish, and then you think about, like, well, how does that translate to a much larger group of people where we don't have the same kind of touch points?
0: And we're, we're talking about what New Zealand's trying to do with mm-hmm. their sort of their, their national kind of wellness register I'm yeah. not sure what it's called, but you know, try, trying to quantify that on a national level, mm-hmm. um, which is really difficult to do. And I think the reason yeah. why lots of you know nations don't do it is just because it's, it's just difficult, and how do you get your head around it? But it's yeah. something that needs to be done, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think there is a bit of a movement internationally towards trying to measure things that actually matter instead of just measuring what's easy to measure. Dollars and cents. Yeah. And I I think it's great. I think it is, you know, um, trying to measure levels of kindness, for example, (laughs) it's going to be a super big challenge. Um, But I love the fact that they're going to (laughs) try. Yeah, Yeah, that's great.
0: And I suppose there are, I mean, yeah, sure, it's not as easy as like hits to a website or dollars Mm -hmm. in a bank account. But there are that you you can probably start putting together sort of macro... um, Uh, indicators, you know, based off of people's general happiness levels and and how they feel in the workplace and at home and in society in general.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly internationally, there are other countries that have had uh, national happiness indexes for a while. And it's, um, you know, Bhutan is where it started um, and they have um, gross national happiness instead of gross domestic product as their main measure of the country's health. Um, and so there, there is actually quite a lot internationally that would allow you to kind of leverage um, and measure things that do seem to matter and are much clo- more closely connected to people's well-being and happiness um, than economic measures are alone, although usually yeah. these com- countries measure both. Because yeah, goes hand in hand.
0: Yeah. Something that I suppose used to kind of irk me, but now it's, I see it as more of a positive is, okay, so there was this trend towards um, you know, culture in the workplace and and. and more purpose and, and mm-hmm. team empowerment, and I think you know, corporate sort of took that on as oh shit, we have to do this too. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just make it a, a sort of veneer. But I think the statistics around for purpose businesses, for profit businesses, are so compelling now from a purely economic standpoint yeah. that you know people are probably not doing it so much as a as a show thing. It's actually shit. We need to do this, um, you know, t- to make more money.
1: Yeah, and uh, and, I mean, and I obviously
0: think... you know help, but I think there's there's always that sort of. Fear, I suppose, of you know greed. just doing yeah. it for money. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an interesting shift in consumers more recently, probably in the last five or six years, where, I, I mean, I'm just riffing here, but I, I think that there's a, a an appetite for authenticity and for realness, um, and we want it from brands in a way where, you know, I don't think people thought that that was possible maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that it just... It didn't seem like that was something you could get. But then when you start to see brands that are doing it and doing it really well, then what you see is that people actually, they feel like they know these people. Um, and I don't think that you can create that kind of real feeling in, in consumers about your business if you're doing it for money.
0: No, you're just faking the funk, right? And like people yeah. see straight through it. Exactly. I, I suppose as. Media has become fragmented, and you know, and we kind of grew up on the on the edge of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel very much in that camp of I, I want to, you know, I, I'm passionate about a brand, and when I get behind it, then I'm yeah. telling everybody about yeah. it, right, and become a real advocate. Um, but I, my trust isn't earned easily. Totally. Um, so you kind of you have to be, you know, authentic, and I feel like authentic, it's, it's, it is a it's really an nice, word, it's it, it's nice at its core. It just gets, you know, I suppose they all yeah. become.
1: <laughs> well, I think people start to use authenticity as. Another persona that you put on, yeah, yeah. which is
0: now we're being authentic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting um, down here. We've got upbank, like w- watching some of the the bigger corporates sort of. Uh, it's happening in health insurance. They have these players where they're essentially rebranding, you know, mm-hmm. their business in a in a smaller subs- subsidiary, just to, to to have those conversations. Hey, mm-hmm. we we talk your talk. We you know, yeah, we're we, just we, like we you. know who you are. Yeah, yeah. literally, what the, the yeah. sort of campaigns are. It's interesting. Um, it is
1: interesting. I mean. I think there's probably a lot of positive to come from it, but also I think the you know the early forays into it, particularly by the larger corporates, um, you know, it's probably going to be slightly clunky. If they come up as
0: cheesy, they're not going to work, right? So, um, I think that you know, it's nice to know that even if people are doing it for the wrong reasons initially, it's still going to have the the same outcomes Mm -hmm. down the track. So,
1: yeah, and I mean, it sort of means that the incentives are much better aligned for consumers to actually you know, get the kinds of things they really want from customer from brands and from places where they get their stuff from. And I think that's probably one of the biggest positives that we've seen coming out of e-commerce is that because you can actually see whether people are kind of changing their minds on the basis of what you're doing, you, you can kind of follow up a bit better um, and you don't end up sort of throwing mud at the wall and hoping some of it sticks.
0: From a, a digital marketing perspective, I've, I've always taken the – um, the viewpoint that I don't, I prefer tailored market. Like I prefer to be marketed to. Personalized. I mean, it gets to a point where I suppose it it does become, you know, there's the, ethics around it, yeah. right? But I, I would prefer it to be personalized. And bit, Absolutely.
1: So yeah, um, I don't want to see ads for stuff I don't care yeah. about. It's boring. I, I
0: started watching I don't know, one of the food, one of the commercial food networks there Channel Seven. I I haven't watched commercial TV for mm-hmm. so long, and you know, you watch the ads and like, wow, this is you know, this is what we grew up with. But it, yeah. it's just, you know, it's just a blanket like you people out there. Mm-hmm. It's if it was if it was off.
1: It does feel off. And I mean, I think as a, as a consumer, as someone who's kind of, you know, out in the world wanting to be exposed to things that I might find interesting, it's very, very hard to do all of that research for yourself. There's too many things. And so, you know, I think there's definitely ways that digital advertising and marketing can be creepy and yuck, but I think when it's done well and it's actually serving you things you like, then, you know, it can be fantastic and it sort of saves me a bunch of time in terms of looking for... Something. If I'm looking for something,
0: and and I suppose the the authenticity level and the, the the ethics and the character of the whatever the brand might be, if if they're all aligned and it feels right, which funnily enough happened with Belov, it's like okay, well I give you the trust, I give you the click. Yeah. I mean now now what are you gonna do? And and you and, yeah. and you give you give that trust. So I, I mean I don't have a problem on that level.
1: No, but and I think that trust is actually quite a, a fantastic currency for keeping people honest because. It's actually super easy to break it. Um, and because it's fragile, and companies I think are aware of the fragility of the trust that consumers put in them, um, that it does kind of cause this ongoing um, sort of thought process around just checking. because I think we all kind of intuitively understand that you know it might have taken you 10 or 15 good interactions to kind of build up some level of trust with someone. And they do one thing wrong and you're like, no, I'm out. Um, And so because it is sort of a little bit fragile in that way, I think it does cause a good level of care, I guess, and kind of thought-provoking discussions internally. I mean, it does at Bellroy, but I'm sure it does at many other brands as well.
0: It's a real currency. I mean, I think if you looked at the, the initial business plan of, say, Bellroy, we're going to make wallets that, you know, are really nice and have inter- you know, interesting features on it. If you took that to a, you know, a traditional, I don't know, uh, investment firm, they'd be like, well, oh, there's a million wallets out there. Yeah. What, what happens when someone just in China rips it off? Oh, no, we're actually, we, we're for purpose. So that, that, it's hard to build that, right? And now it's worth a lot to, to you guys. I mean, because that's, that's who you are, right? I mean, the products are obviously have to, have, to, have to walk out there and do the things that you say they're going to do, but it's Absolutely. about much more than that.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it's also it, the trust that the consumers have in us as a brand – is absolutely sort of made or break or broken on whether or not the products actually do what they're meant to do, you know, because when you sort of, particularly I think when we were early on as a wallet business mainly, um, it was the case then that most of our customers, you know, they buy one wallet and because our wallets actually do really last for a long time, we then sort of can't, sell them anything else for quite some time like I mean we have a three year warranty and it was genuinely the case that people were keeping their wallets for at least that that length of time Um, and when we didn't have the broader range of products that we have now we really had to do a great job of making sure that that person actually loved the product so that when they went to get another wallet three years later they still were like I'm having a Bellroy.
0: Or their mate was gonna you know they pull out the wallet and and talk about it and I think that you know becomes a conversation piece and I think earning that trust then when they yeah, well, go to buy another wallet or they see something that might be cheaper, they're like, oh, I'm willing to pay the, you know, mm-hmm. the extra for something that I know and yeah. that's going to work and then I yeah. love.
1: And you do see that like, you know, because I work for the company, um, when people hear that you work for Bellroy, particularly around Melbourne when we do have like quite a lot of market saturation here, um, it's quite common to have someone sort of go, oh, Bellroy, and they pull, it out of, pull their wallet out and they totally want to talk to me about their wallet. Um, which is it's very sweet and I love it. But you also see them doing it with each other. Like I've seen it in cafes where like, you know, I'm just lining up to get a coffee and the person in front of me pulls out their wallet and someone else in the cafe sees them pull out a Bellroy and go and pulls their Bellroy out and they just have this little moment of like almost cheersing the wallets and they're like... But I don't see what you're doing there.
0: I don't think any of that would have happened just on the, on the product alone. I think what the work that's been done around that. So, mm-hmm. so jumping back, I suppose, more into to your role, um, I'm interested in people that have been involved in businesses that have grown significantly. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you maintain that uh, culture or, you know, that, that team spirit that might have been there in the early stages and that the founders have as yeah. you sort of scale into uh, how many people are at Belloway now? Uh,
1: so we have around 95 yeah, staff so, now. So um, into a big team. Yeah. And when I joined in uh, 2015, I was number 38. Yeah, so we've more than doubled in the last four years.
0: And I suppose a big part of your role is is trying to um, I'm putting words in your mouth, but you know, um, maintain that 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 spirit within the team as, as you grow and yeah. as you bring new people on.
1: Yeah, certainly to maintain it, but also to allow it to evolve um, and to make sure that you know we're not sort of holding on to a thing from the past so tightly that we're not um, keeping up to date and that we're not kind of including all of the various perspectives of all the people that are there now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely been a huge part of my role to be making sure that that we are kind of conscious of how we do that um, and that we're doing it really, really actively all the time. So, I mean, do you want me to talk no, about what, what we what, actually what, do?
0: Yeah, well, I'm interested in sort of what, I mean, yeah. what, what your kind of day-to-day is or what some of the yeah, initiatives, I suppose, that you're running to do that.
1: Yeah, um, so I think whenever you're looking at a culture um, sort of being the emergent set of values and behaviours and interactions that any group of people has, whenever you add a person, that person will have an impact on the culture. Um, You know, it's unavoidable that that will happen and you want that to be a good thing and not a bad thing. Um, And so one of the biggest pieces is to make sure that our recruitment process um, sort of finds both really strongly aligned people but also enough diversity and enough kind of breadth there that we're also bringing in a bunch of new ideas um, and thoughts. So um, we have a very rigorous recruitment process um, that you know, most, most people who go through it tell us that they actually really enjoy it and um, that they learn about a bunch about themselves and that they find it really interesting. Um, but it, it is certainly one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle in terms of making sure that we are very, very careful about who we bring in and that we really know them. So that when, um, when they come in, we know that we can provide the kind of environment that will allow them to flourish um, because, you know, not every environment will suit every individual.
0: And how much of that process is, is human and how much of it is you know, uh, psychometric or, or how does it sit?
1: Uh, so it's a combination, um, basically because you want to have a human element. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we want all of our staff to feel connected to the company and connected to each other. And... So it's very important to allow them to have the interactions with the, our existing staff and our existing staff to interact with them to kind of see whether that connection is, is going to be there. Um, but whenever you have humans involved in a process, you're going to have a bunch of bias. Um, and so we do also have um, psychometrics. So we, we do a couple of um, different tests there to kind of check for um, some conscientiousness and kind of ability to get things done, that sort of thing, as well as thinking styles, like the way in which people think um, And then we also have uh, a sort of blended approach where we're using some standard questions to um, draw out of people information that is a little bit more able to be objectively assessed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's such a difficult process and I can't imagine doing it at that scale. I mean, something that we've, and there's 10 of us in our team had to refine over a number of years as well in a similar process. Like now it's actually quite a, Know, three or four step process, mm-hmm. you know, for a small business, that's often people are sort of, mm-hmm. wow, well, it's hugely time Why, why are we going through this? But yeah. it's so, I mean, so important, both both for the existing team and for the new candidate that's coming on board to mm-hmm. to be a right fit. Because I mean, we we, yeah. we we want you to be around for the next, you know, however many years you're going to going to yeah. be on board and be excited and empowered to come in. So making that decision, it doesn't come easily or quickly.
1: Yeah. And I think as a you know, as a business it can feel like it is a very large investment in time and, you know, money and that kind of stuff to kind of getting to know the candidates and finding them. Um, But I think where we kind of spend a bunch of our time investment and money investment up front in kind of learning about the candidates during the process, other companies pay probably a lot more than that in losing people more quickly in kind of making a not quite right decision and then having to change someone um, or in kind of having the lost productivity associated with having someone and it's not that they're a bad person or you're a bad company, but they're not quite in the right spot to be able to really give you um, their full selves.
0: And if you, I think if you could measure that, not just purely on a, on a financial position, but it, it, it mm-hmm. has a huge toll on the business. And we've had a couple mm-hmm. of um, people come through recently where it just wasn't the right fit. And it's, it's actually, it's, especially in a small business, it's, it's a yeah. it's a brutal thing to have to sort of deal with both from a leader and a management point of view, but also from a human and personal point of view and for yeah. the team that don't sort of see all of that nuance. So you don't want to go through that if at all possible. No, and
1: I mean, culturally, it's also challenging to handle that. Um, you need to be able to develop enough trust um, with everyone to be able to, you know, hopefully you make as few errors as you can in terms of, of bringing people in Um, and having them be the right fit and feel like they love the company. But I think it's inevitable that it won't be right every time. Do do you feel,
0: just something I've found, I mean, I go through this long process, but often, and it's probably easier in a smaller situation, but often that initial gut feel is actually quite close to the end uh, end result. I
1: I think yes and no. I think that it depends what your gut's looking at. Um, So I think yes, definitely, you know, I think some of us can get a sort of strong sense of someone being aligned. Um, but I also think there's a very nearby experience that you can have where you just kind of like someone. Um, and I think that that initial flavour of liking someone is often quite short-term, um, which, you know, I think we all assume that if we like someone in the first meeting that we'll like them in a long-term way, like, you know, meaning that they will be a good fit. Um But I think that what that does accidentally is over-preference those individuals who are quite easily and comfortably social and it sort of under-preferences individuals who will actually be fantastic over the long term but are just a little harder to get to know initially. Um, And so I do think you can get a gut sense but we are quite conscious and careful about making sure that we sort of think carefully about what that gut sense is actually telling us. Um, and to make sure that we are kind of trying to balance out advantages and disadvantages throughout the process so that we're not, you know, accidentally hiring all of the gregarious folks who are excellent, but we also need some balance and have a few more introverts and quieter folks as well.
0: And I suppose that helps to sort of weed out that well the, the biases that, that can exist when you are just hiring people that, you know, you yeah. feel like, oh, I could be mates with this.
1: With this. Yeah. You know, the person you want to have a beer with yeah. on a Friday night, mm. um, might be fantastic and there might be somebody else who probably don't want to have a beer on on Friday night but they're absolutely awesome to work with. Um, And I think one of the things that we do in Bellroy to kind of help with that, and I don't think you can get bias out entirely but you can try, Um, one of the things that we do is we have a very small number of people who are engaged in the recruitment process end-to-end and are partnering with the... Uh, hiring manager, so the person who's going to be managing the team that's being hired into. And that's basically because when you're sort of only occasionally interacting with a recruitment process, like if you're the hiring manager, you might do it, you know, once a year or something like that it's very hard to become strongly calibrated on what your gut is actually telling you because you don't have enough time to practice. Yeah,
0: that's right. And you yeah. need to, pr- that's something that you need to practice, isn't it? Yeah. Do you, so you, all the recruitment's done internally? Yes. I've, I've found, I've never had any success with external recruitment companies. And I think that the biggest issue I have is they're not aligned with, with you know, our values. And then, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, they're just trying to place a candidate. I know I know, mm-hmm. I know, there's some good ones out there that you know do try and align more with the business's vision, but even that's very difficult to do, right? Unless you yeah. spend significant time and go through that process of actually coming on board.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's a challenging um, situation for the recruiter yeah. to be, you know, they're, they're kind of often they've never met you, they haven't been into the office, they haven't got a feel for who the people are in the team. And even if they've done that stuff, their experience with you is only likely to be superficial, yeah. Um, I think, you know, we also think that feedback is pretty inherently necessary part of any process to make sure you can actually refine the process. And I think unfortunately for most recruitment agencies or like external recruiters, the feedback loop for them is very, very crap. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, usually they have some information about whether or not the person stayed maybe up to six months, but it's pretty binary. It's like, did you get paid or not paid? Um, and, you know, knowing maybe they have one phone call or something with that person to find out, like, are they happy. But, yeah, it's very transactional and it's a very, very small number of of pieces of information that you collect in not very strong ways, whereas we have this person in our office every day or working for us every day and so we get to see them over time we get to see how they develop we get to see you know what was the fit between the manager and the and the person we've hired how do they fit with the rest of the team do they love what's going on we just have so much richer feedback that I think you know it would be extremely challenging to try and get that right with external recruiters.
0: How do you go about having those conversations with with team members and uh, let's say new recruits because I, I find often a lot of people don't necessarily like talking about sort of how feeling in a role necessarily especially if it's about managers or other team members like Mm -hmm. it's hard to get sort of I suppose to the bottom of how someone actually does feel at work how do you I suppose open people up to to being feeling comfortable to talk like that
1: yeah um, I think it's interesting because I think that a lot of this is actually about practice for the individual Um, and because part of our recruitment process kind of actually asks them to reflect on how they're feeling about the process as well as kind of how they're feeling about the company and the role and and the manager and the kind of work that they're going to do. So we're actually sort of in part in the recruitment process, we're actually checking for whether or not they're able to access that sense and we're building... In them, a series of interactions that encourage them to trust us to tell us the truth,
0: and it feels like part of the process. And this is just part of the mm-hmm. the role here. This is what yeah. I'm. Ex- this what's expected.
1: Yeah, and it's part of the culture at Belroy that we do um and back you know to, really to genuinely trust. want to know. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know then it is then it is very much back to that idea of the negative stuff being super powerful, and so it is really very challenging to make sure that we then hold up our end of the bargain in terms of it actually being safe to tell you to tell me or to tell whoever what's actually happening for you Um, and I think that that's the piece where you know we won't always get it right but what we're trying to do certainly what I'm personally trying to do is to make sure that the very very large number of very small interactions that you have shows that person over time that they can trust you because you need to build up a bank of goodwill with each individual so that in the inevitable time when you do you know accidentally get it wrong or you're having a bad day or you're just too busy and you kind of didn't notice that something was wrong um that that person doesn't think that that's normal you that they have such a you know massive amount of information behind it to say that that's not normally how it goes that they give you the, the benefit of the doubt and they'll have another crack.
0: and they know you're there to listen I feel like it, it kind of goes full circle into saying the way the brand uh, puts itself externally to its customers mm-hmm. and then the way it comes back internally is exactly the same so yeah um, you know if you, you need to have that same feedback loop and trust level um, you know going out to market mm-hmm. um, so customers you know, feel obliged to say I've loved yourself stuff for so long but
1: yeah, hey, and this went wrong. and Yeah.
0: Oh, so, so you know, whatever the, the yeah. answer might be or the conversation. So, yeah, it's really interesting. I think it, it really does reflect.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, as internal, um, internally where we're talking with people that we actually see all the time, there are a lot of behavioral cues that can kind of signal whether or not you're on the right track. Um, you know, like if, if I speak to someone three or four times in a row and I ask them how they're doing and they – give me the kind of, I'm fine. I'm like, you're not fine. Like, I'm fine is not actually good. Um, And so, you know, it's interactions like that where, you know, maybe the first time they say I'm fine, I'll kind of let them not tell me, let them kind of go about their business, but I'm going to find another time to sort of bump into that person again and see if I can give them an opportunity that's a little bit better to actually tell me what's going on. Um, and you know, if, if I feel like it needs something that's a little more forceful than that to kind of show them that I do actually care, then I, you know, I will do that if I need to, I'll go and grab them and say, Hey, can we go for a coffee? You know, I've noticed that you look like you're not having a good time. Do you want to tell me what's going on? I'd really like to be able to help you.
0: Do you think more businesses could benefit from having the role that kind of you sit in, um, even smaller business? Because often it's hard, I think, if you've got like a, a manager or a project manager or a leader trying to sort of wear those two hats, mm-hmm. I suppose, um, can, be, can be difficult um, to trade. Obviously, yeah. and I think you need to as a manager, but then having someone that's sort of, yeah. that's, their, that's their primary focus.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough one because I think when you're a smaller business, it's going to be hard to kind of have the funds to be able to have someone all the time. And I think, in any business, you don't want this to be held in one person. Um, No matter what sort of size the business is, you want it to be as spread as you can, and to have everybody kind of trying to do these behaviors. But I also think it's excellent to be able to have someone to kind of help, um, and who's, you know, an expert in this kind of thing, so that they can provide advice and training and kind of help you with the trickier parts. Um, And I mean it's actually interesting that's that's kind of what my next step is going to be um so I'm in the last uh, I'm in the last couple of weeks of my time at Bellroy um which has been fantastic and I still love the company and will hopefully remain very connected to them um but I, I am actually going out on my own to have a crack at doing that for the businesses that can't actually have someone internally and to help him out, that's so. great.
0: I, I think we've had a few people come into our business that have done similar things. So a, a financial consultant, mm-hmm. CFO for hire that's come in and done something similar. And she has some HR um, side to her role too. Yeah. And it's just been, it's done wonders for our business to have, you know, yeah. someone, you know, we can't afford to have someone full time, but someone mm-hmm. that can come in as a consultant and get to know us and our culture and our people. And, you know, pro- as a provide some of those insights that you've learned from, you know, working somewhere like Bell. Yeah. So that's exciting.
1: And I think, yeah, I mean, I'm super excited about kind of spreading the love around a little bit more. Um, But I think particularly interesting to be able to come in a little bit earlier in the piece than it would be likely to be possible if you were coming in as a full-time hire Um, because it means then that you're kind of able to bake this into the DNA a little bit more kind of along the way and help uh, particularly, I think, to help founders because I think in any culture um, you have certain individuals who are having a massively outsized influence on what's happening. And in a business, that's always going to be the people at the top.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: Yeah. And And so, you need to be helping them.
0: Being in that position, it's been hard to get myself out of it. But I've been trying to do Mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, from good advice because you don't want to be that founder that kind of is just uh, cramping the, the, you know, the the style of the business as it grows and and, um, letting it flourish.
1: Yeah. And I think also, you know, it's a tough gig being a founder. And, you know, I think many people find this out to some degree when they become a manager where you kind of, your behaviour is under a microscope and people kind of, they take things that you've done and they think that they mean something way bigger than they actually do and, you know, you're kind of, you're still a human being so you're kind of trying to, you know, behave as well as you can but you're never going to be perfect and so it's a tough gig to be kind of accidentally having outsized influences on your culture that you maybe didn't want to have. And you're like, how did, it, how did that happen? Why? <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. so and, and you yeah. want
0: to be able to walk through life and work, you know, being yourself. And, and that's, I think that's part of, you know, this sort of well-being and happiness indicator is being, you know, not feeling like you have to, you know, uh, put on a suit, uh, you know, and, and, and be that person that, yeah. that you're not. Be someone else. But you also, as a founder, or as a leader, as a manager, you do have to be obviously mindful of that and conscious.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there are things that you can do in your culture to kind of have it be that people do see you as a human being. Um, and you do kind of get a little bit more of the normal affordances that people get in social situations. Um, but I think if, if you don't do that quite intentionally, it's unlikely to develop kind of by accident. It'd be a lot of luck to get that.
0: And I think i think i'm I'm guilty of this going the other way and and sort of not finding that balance, so too much of the human side and not enough of the manager
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and I mean it is a tough kind of gig because people do want to be able to be inspired by you, for example, and so a little bit of distance can be helpful um, but I think depending on what your sort of particular flavor of inspiration is, sometimes I think it's possible to marry them up pretty closely where part of what you're inspiring people to do is to be human. Yeah. Um, so I think it's possible, but it is a tricky gig, <laughs> gig being well, a founder.
0: Well, my closing question was going to be, um, what excites you about the future? But it sounds like you've got lots of exciting things on the horizon. Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think um, the thing that excites me the most about the future is working on building human connections, um, particularly through workplaces because... I think you know um, beyond school, where we have that sort of long-term interaction with our, the same group of people, work is the next place where you have that sort of long-term interaction with the same group of people over time. Um, and it's it's sort of for adults, it's the primary field, um, space where they learn. And so, if you want to create sort of change in the world, then workplaces are a particularly great leverage point. Um, and you know, my particular thing is to be able to create a little bit more human connection. Um, and workplaces are going to be a key sort of facet of how we teach people how to do that really well.
0: That's exciting. I, I saw that you have sort of a background in education, but why, why should our education stop once we go into the workforce? I mean, and, and obviously yeah. shouldn't in terms of learning, but I don't think we think about it from a like that more human perspective of, you know, mm-hmm. you're developing so much while you're at school. Why, why should that stop once you, once you get out into the workforce?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, people um, are often operating under this flawed model of development where they think that you know I'm an adult now yeah <laughs> I'm kind of done I'm done um and I think Probably that that's developed. absolutely not true no. <laughs> um, And not only is it possible but I think it's almost inevitable that you will develop um and that you can kind of choose to develop in ways that you that make you better and that make you kind of happier and, and more aligned with what you actually want or you can kind of develop by default and you'll get buffeted around a bit by what's happening in the environment around you and the other people that you interact with and, you know, what's happening in your social environments. Um, and that, you know, you'll still develop, but maybe with a little bit less control over where you're headed. And I think one of the saddest phenomenons is in the world is when someone kind of realizes quite late in the piece that they didn't end up being the person that they wanted to be. I
0: agree. Uh, And I think it's, it's, it's tragic. It's, and and it's, and it's, you see it happen far too much, you know. Mm-hmm. That all of us do in our families, and we say, well, I don't want to be that person," but I think we often struggle to realize that it's all happening. You know, right, right yeah. this second. So,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> like who you want to be is what you're doing right now, and um, I think it's very, very easy to accidentally miss that and to just kind of be like, "Oh yeah, no, I'll be that person later," and then you just never find the time to do that.
0: Oh, well, exciting! I'm well, looking forward to sort of uh, seeing where things go for you. Um, and uh, lovely meeting you. You too. Enjoy the rest of PauseFest.
1: Thanks, I
0: will. You too. Cool. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Sam here again. Thanks so much for listening. It was a pleasure chatting with Charlie. If you want to find out more about Bellroy, you can head to bellroy.com. It's with two L's. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can just Google Digital Noir Presents and find us on your favorite podcast channel, Medium, whatever, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. Pausefest.com some exciting news coming up around pause fest in the next couple of months and and speakers will start being released so really excited looking forward to 2020 which is coming very fast which is scary and until then we'll be releasing one of these chats every month so until next time enjoy cheers